This Word on Fire Minute is brought to you by Advantage Futures. As Catholics, we must take advantage of new technology to spread the faith. Wordonfire.org is on the front lines, featuring the work of one of the church's best messengers, Father Robert Barron. At wordonfire.org, you'll find inspirational podcasts, videos, audio sermons, books, DVDs, and the Catholicism Project. It is one of the most ambitious efforts ever to promote the Catholic faith to the world. Catholicism is Father Barron's global documentary series, filmed in high definition and now in production for TV and DVD. Father Barron's series will illustrate the beauty and depth of the church and explain the Catholic faith on our own terms. It will be an exciting new way for families, parishes, and schools to teach Catholicism. Preview the production, join our email list, and contribute to the Catholicism Project at wordonfire.org. Become part of the story today. This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of Love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us, so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, from at least the time of Feuerbach, Marx, and Freud, a standard critique of Christianity is that it advocates pie in the sky when you die. It's an otherworldly system that encourages escapism and a troubling indifference to the struggles of the world. You'll hear, by the way, much the same thing from many of the so-called new atheists. They're not really very new at all, but these new atheists who, with the help of their legion of media supporters, are bad-mouthing religion today. The one rather serious problem with this theory is it hasn't a thing to do with biblical Christianity. And our readings for today, for this second Sunday of Easter, are especially helpful, I think, in clarifying this matter. Our first reading is taken from the fourth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. And what it is, is an idealized picture of the early church. It gives us a kind of snapshot of what that early group of Jesus' followers was about. Now, If Freud and Marx and Feuerbach are right, religion is just pie in the sky when you die, wishful thinking about some heavenly world, these first devotees of the risen Jesus would be gazing up to heaven, turning with relief from the struggles of this world, pining for their own ascension. But here's the point. We see none of that. Instead, these first Christians were deeply interested in the things of this world and in establishing a community of justice. Again, that's the critique, isn't it, from Marx and company, is Christians aren't concerned with justice because we're always pining after heaven. We ignore the concrete conditions of suffering in this world as we long for heaven. But, But that's not true. That's not true in the early church. They're deeply concerned with justice. How do we know? 
we hear that they place their goods at the feet of the apostles. They sold their, their goods, that they placed the, the proceeds at the feet of the apostles so that things could be more fairly and equitably distributed. The result, and again, this is an idealized account, but the result was, quote, there was no needy person among them. So again, if these people were simply hankering after heaven, why in the world would they be so concerned with economic justice? We find something similar in our second reading, which is taken from the first letter of John. This extraordinary letter, by the way, we're reading it during the Easter season. Take the time, alone or with your family maybe, to read the first letter of John. It's an extraordinary little thing. You can read it in one sitting, but it's filled with the theology of the church. But in the passage for today, John tells his little Christian community that they who believe in Jesus have been begotten by the Father, so that now they share in the sonship of Jesus. Okay, so far we say that sounds so uh, spiritual, even rather otherworldly. But then we come to this. Listen. Whoever is begotten by God conquers the world. And the victory that conquers the world is this faith of ours. Let me say that again. I'm quoting now directly from the letter. Whoever is begotten by God conquers the world. And the victory that conquers the world is this faith of ours. Now, just notice, friends, how strange these words are. John is talking here not to a mighty army, not to an imperial force, but to a little gathering of beleaguered and persecuted Christians. There was no mighty international organization, no Vatican, no impressive tradition of art and intellectuality. There was just this little group. And yet, yet, he can tell them that they have conquered the world. Again, stay with this to to understand how strange it is. That means they've conquered Rome. They've conquered the powers. They've conquered the greatest forces on the planet. Notice, please, he does not say, you have escaped from the world. He says, you've conquered it and are therefore presumably ready to reign. He means these Christians, through their faith, have a decisively important role to play in the reconfiguration of society. They are to remake the world. Hmm. Strange, isn't it? Doesn't make a lick of sense on Marxist grounds or Freudian grounds. And where does this confidence come from? What precisely made these first believers so eager to participate in the remaking of the world? Here's the answer. It was the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's why we're looking at these readings in the Easter season. It was the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead that gave them this enormous confidence to remake the world, 
to strive for a more just society. It gave them the confidence to reign in the world. Now notice I said the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Here's something, friends, I feel so strongly about. We are, to an extraordinary degree, influenced, whether we know it or not, by the philosophy of Plato. In these matters of soul and body, of spirit and matter, and in the meaning of salvation, we are, whether we know it or not, very Platonic. Here's what I mean. Even a great many Christians today would hold that at death, the soul escapes from the body to remain in a purely spiritual realm with God. Now, again, this might be Plato's fantasy, but it's not Christian hope. Our hope is not for the escape of the soul from the body, and that's it. Our hope, rather, is for the resurrection of the body and the renewal of creation. The coming, to use biblical language, of a new heavens and a new earth. Watch that phrase now up and down the New Testament. You find it echoed in the Old Testament as well. A new heavens and a new earth. That's what God is holding out to us. We don't want to escape from the world. We want to see it transformed under God's grace and with our cooperation. Now, at the end of time, sure, that's the fullness of it. But Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection in the world now, gives us the courage and the impetus to begin. That even now, by our works of love, charity, justice, by our willingness to oppose the powers of the world, with our confidence that in Christ we've conquered the world, we can begin even now to cooperate with the emergence of the new heavens and the new earth. All this confidence comes from the strange and disquieting fact that stands at the origin of Christian faith, this resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus died and was then resurrected in his body. A renewed, elevated, transfigured body to be sure, but still a body inhabiting space and time. He was, as Paul put it, the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. He was the foretaste and promise of what would come for all of us at the end of time. That's Christian hope. That's resurrection faith. And that's why it gives us such confidence even now to participate in the great work of God. Now, friends, it's against that background that we can best understand the story of Doubting Thomas. That's our gospel for today story we all know well. The other disciples are in the upper room when Jesus appears. They see him, they rejoice, but Thomas is not there. They tell him the story. 
and he famously balks. Unless I can put my finger in the wounds in his hand, unless I can put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now here's a point I want to make. To his great credit, Thomas gets it. What I mean is, he understands what his friends meant when they spoke of Jesus' resurrection. He knew they were not talking about a journey to heaven. He knew they weren't saying, oh, he died, but his soul went to be with God. He knew they weren't talking about a subjective experience. He knew they weren't talking about some spiritual vision. Thomas knew, and that's at the heart of his doubt, he knew they were talking about a bodily event. That's what resurrection would have meant to a first century Jew. He just couldn't bring himself to believe it. But see, again, stay with what he knew they were saying. That's the important thing here. And how wonderful, then, that Jesus proves precisely this bodiliness to Thomas. When Thomas is there and Jesus returns, he says, Put your finger in my wound. Put your hand in my side. When Thomas sees this, he fully gets it. What he sees is this resurrection fact. And what's born in him is the resurrection faith of the church. And in light of that, Thomas is given the greatest one-liner in the Bible. My Lord and my God. Yeah, wonderful. Who is Jesus? Oh, there's all kinds of points of view. People, you know, say he's this and that. He's Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They think he's, he's a great teacher or something. He's just a blasphemer. There's all these different views. Who is the one at the end of the biblical revelation who fully and finally gets it? It's this Thomas who can say, my Lord and my God. What he sees in Jesus, what he confesses is, this is God's intention from the beginning of salvation history. To bring about a new heavens and a new earth. The first fruits of which is Jesus risen from the dead. And friends, this is the faith that gives the lie to Feuerbach, Marx, and Freud, and all the atheists today who say that we're just about pie in the sky when you die. No, no. We're about a new heavens and a new earth. Commencing with the resurrection of Jesus. Something that we participate in even now. That we cooperate with even now through our works of love, justice, and charity. That's resurrection faith. And that is our call to cooperate with. God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. 